I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, a psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 239 of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Today we have Dr. Isabel Miller presenting Virilio's Lost Dimensions, the Psychic and the Technical, and Dwayne Monroe presenting From Success Comes Failure on the Dialectics of Cloud Computing. This is a recording of an event given as part of our Psychoanalysis Art in the Occult series at Morbid Anatomy Museum Online. This event was from Sunday, September 25th, 2022. For upcoming events, visit morbidanatomy.org events and or psychartcult.org. A video of this event can be found at our Vimeo page. Please visit renderingunconscious.org for links and more information. Join us for our next Psychoanalysis Art in the Occult event coming up Sunday, May 14th. We have The People Eaters are having a great feast. The Uncanny in Cinema. Carl Abrahamson presenting on Ingmar Bergman's Hour of the Wolf. All right, so thank you all for joining us today. This is our latest installment of Psychoanalysis, Art, and the Occult, uh, which is a series curated by Dr. Vanessa Sinclair and Carl Abrahamson, dedicated to exploring the intersections and integration of psychoanalytic theory, the creative arts, occult practices, and folk magic traditions. I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Sinclair, who will introduce today's talks and speakers. Welcome all. Thank you, Christina. Welcome, everyone, to the latest installment of Psych Art Cult. Um, before I introduce this class, I just want to let you know, for those who don't know, Psychoanalysis Art in the Occult started back in 2016. Our first event was at Morbid Anatomy Museum in New York. And then since then, Carl and I have had conferences in London and in Italy. And now we're having a conference in two weeks, um, less than two weeks now, October 14th through 16th. So if you happen to be in the neighborhood of Copenhagen, we're going to be doing our third conference, uh, the 14th through the 16th in Copenhagen at this fantastic little underground cinema uh, called Who Sets Biograph, um, and the topic is Psychoanalysis and the Magic of Cinema. It's called Visionary Medium. So I'll put a link to that in the chat, um, and as always, the best way to follow Carl and I is at our Patreon, which I'll also put in the chat. And then to introduce today, today we have Dr. Isabel Millar and Dwayne Monroe. Um, we're going to hear from Dwayne first. It's called From Success Comes Failure on Cloud Computing. And Dwayne Monroe is a technologist and Marxist analyst of the tech sector with 20 years of experience in North America and Europe. He uses hands-on knowledge to critique the nature and characteristics of the industry from a dialectical perspective. He's currently finishing a book, Attack Mannequins, and you have to come back when that book comes out, <laughs> about the AI industry, <laughs> and has written for The Nation, Logic Magazine, and Sublation Media. And I will put his website, monroelab.net, and his Twitter in the chat as well. Take it away, Dwayne. Thank you, uh, Vanessa. Hello, everyone. Um, as Vanessa was saying, my name is 
Dwayne Monroe. And my talk today with you is about the nature of cloud computing, but beyond its actual characteristics as it exists today, what I see as its future, which is not exactly the future that the tech industry is promoting. The title of my talk is From Sex. <laughs> from <success. laughs> nice Freudian slip. <laughs> Indeed. Um, from Success, Failure, The Fall of Cloud Computing. And let's, uh, let's move forward, shall we? So at this time in our history, what is called cloud computing and artificial intelligence, a term of art, apparently seems to be in command of our society. You hear mention of these, these uh, methodologies, these technologies uh, in the news quite often. Um, if you use Spotify, if you use, uh, your, um, if you use Google, if you use any of the platforms that we are familiar with and that we are dependent upon today, you'll hear the phrase uh, cloud computing. And of course, uh, the term AI or artificial intelligence is used um, almost every day to describe um, one or another system. And so these two terms, which are actually mated, uh, seem to be in command of our society, of our civilization, and seem to be determining what the future course of our societies and our civilization will be. Ubiquitous and unstoppable from surveillance technologies that you may hear about, um, on a daily basis from various news entities, from the idea of self-driving cars um, to platforms such as DAL-E, which uh, from OpenAI, which is a company out of Silicon Valley that produces uh, so-called AI uh, platforms, uh, to um, convolution neural networks. These are just examples of the ways in which this technology is presented to us as something that is everywhere, and that we actually have no, no say in. It's almost as if it's a force of nature, um, like it's gravity or radiation, something that will permeate and that is beyond our control. After all, progress is inevitable, yes? So what can we say about it? What can we do about it? All we can do is accept it. And it's a good thing, isn't it? That this technology is growing and spreading across the globe. Doesn't that mean that we're getting a Star Trek future? Well, perhaps not. What is the way that this technology has been presented? It's as if it's ethereal and as if it's magic. In other words, the very term cloud computing gives us the impression that um, there is a cloud, something that seems, seems insubstantial, something that seems that we can't actually get our hands on from AI. These are the kinds of images that you're presented with of for example, a robot reading a book, which is quite hilarious, really. Like, why would the robot be reading a book? Why wouldn't it simply be downloading the data? Never mind. What is cloud? Well, it just seems to be just something that's just out there as uh, part of the ether, uh, a, an insubstantial uh, computational substrate that we simply plug into infinitely. Uh, we have infinite access to music and to movies and to anything that we want. What a time to be alive. This is what we are told. But the question, the critical question for those of us who actually want to understand how the world works, 
and what actually comprises the world, what the world is composed of in material terms. And this is something that I, I emphasize in my work, materialism, historical and dialectical materialism, what lies behind the curtain of what is called cloud computing. Here we see the wizard behind the curtain sweating concerned that someone is actually able to see all the levers that are being pulled that appears um, to be magic when you don't see the curtain. Well, what lies behind the curtain are rooms like this. Rooms that are composed of servers. Servers are powerful computers, not unlike your laptop perhaps or your tablet, but with more memory, more processing power, more capability. Nevertheless, they are machines. They are not magical entities. Take a close look at this room. What, what do you see? You see electricity. You see fire suppression. You see uh, these black boxes. And what is, in, what is inside of these black boxes? Well, let's take a look, shall we? Servers, cables, blinking lights, fans. What we call cloud is actually a physical and industrial process composed of millions upon millions of machines, not magic, not a cloud at all really, but computers aggregated together to form a service or various services, I should say, that we depend upon and that are used to, uh, to control us, but also to give us pleasure. The computers that form the cloud are based upon or derived from the extraction of minerals. When you see this, what you should think of, what I encourage you to think of is this. Because look at this picture really closely. Metal, plastic. Where does metal and plastic come from? Where do they come from? They come from the extraction of minerals. And so the computational infrastructure that we depend upon is not ethereal, it is not magical. It is not something that is disconnected from the earth. It is in fact tied intimately to the earth. And what that means is that there is a direct connection between the extraction of minerals and the creation of the computational infrastructure that we depend upon. There is a manufacturing process. In this picture, what you are seeing are uh, teams of individuals um, actually building uh, central processing and game processing units, which form the, uh, the processing elements of, of computation. It is, again, an, an industrial process. It is not a magical process. There is sweat, there is effort, there is machinery. And these things, once manufactured, typically, mostly in places like China, South Korea, Taiwan, have to be shipped. And so computation is also a part of the global supply chain. Now imagine disruption, geopolitical stresses, war. The, these things have an impact upon computation as much as anything else actually. But we don't think about that. We're not encouraged to think about the way in which computation is actually tied to the industrial processes of the world. And there's another element. In this story, which was featured recently in the BBC News, the, uh, the human labor 
that um, is used to actually train and uh, operate um, what are, um, as a misnomer, referred to as self-driving cars is revealed. Much of what is called AI is actually human labor, obscured beneath the, the lie that what we are getting is magical machine process. The computational infrastructure of our world is extremely complex, extraordinarily complex. In fact, I would say that it is unprecedented in its level of complexity. In this picture, we are seeing cables, internet cables, and actually termination points. And by termination points, I mean points at which the, uh, the points of internet presence are entering various continents. And the data centers, that is to say, the places, the warehouses where the servers, the powerful computers I mentioned earlier, are aggregated. This is a physical infrastructure. It is not, again, it is not magic. It is not, uh, it is not fairy dust. It is a thing that has to be built by people, by labor, by the extraction of minerals. It is, again, an industrial process. I want you to dwell on this for a moment and look at this level of complexity and ask yourself the question, how long can this endure? How long can we do this? Cloud is an industrial process which is dependent on an ever-growing demand for resources, minerals, power, water, etc. Here where I live in the Netherlands, there was a recent um, bit of controversy over the demand of Microsoft and Facebook for water supplies to cool the data centers that they use. This is a, an, an example of a direct impact of what is presented as ethereal upon actual people's needs. And in this case, the need for water because water is used to cool computers in data centers. Now let's pause for a moment to apply dialectical materialism to this particular Question, there are many things in motion here, many things that are actually forming what computation is and how computation is used within our world as, is, as it is presently configured. Climate change, of course, has having an impact upon how, um, or rather the prospects for the use of computer power. As water becomes more scarce, it becomes a more precious commodity in certain areas, difficult questions will have to be asked about the use of water for people or the use of water for cooling computers within data centers. And there's another element, which is complexity theory. Everything is subject to entropy. That is to say, there is a tendency for complex systems to decay over time. The system that we have created is so extraordinarily complex that we do have to ask ourselves some rather hard questions about how long such a system can be maintained. Geopolitics, as I mentioned earlier, there are weaknesses and points within the system that are susceptible to stressors. One of the things that uh, was revealed by the Russian invasion of Ukraine were the flows of raw materials that was unknown to many of us, actually, uh, not just gas, but also other materials. This will have an impact upon the prospects for computation at large scale into the future. Climate change, of course, will have a significant impact upon our prospects for the use of this level of computation as it is currently practiced. We know the, the stats from the IPCC reports about CO2 concentration, 
about sea level rise, about Arctic sea ice, uh, the decline of Arctic sea ice and the retreat of glaciers and other metrics that are moving in a direction that um, left unchecked, it's not good news for humanity. Do we really think that going well into the future that we can maintain this level of industrial process for computation under this level of stress? One of the mentors that I follow is the work of Joseph Tainter, who in his work, The Collapse of Complex Societies, describes how complex societies such as ours, and he uses examples of ancient Rome and the Aztecs and so forth, how those societies face stresses that unless they are actively acknowledged, unless they are dealt with in a, an active way, unless energy is poured into the system, uh, what I would call counter entropic energy, that these civilizations collapse. We have seen this before and there is no reason to think that it can't happen again. Another is the work, another uh, source of uh, insight for me is the work of Richard Cook, who has studied uh, how complex systems fail. And uh, having worked for quite some time, as Vanessa said, 20 years in information technology at scale within enterprises, I have seen complex systems fall apart. Um, and complex systems, I think one of the most important things to keep in mind here is that complex systems are intrinsically hazardous by which uh, Dr. Cook means here that there is a danger to the system itself because you have to constantly monitor it in order to maintain it. My primary thesis here is that the technosphere, as pursued under capitalism, and this is the most important thing, is unsustainable and will indeed collapse. This is not to say that a different type of society, a society organized in a different way, could not enjoy a computational infrastructure, but capitalism with its desire, its need actually for endless growth, unchecked growth, or growth that uh, is, does not uh, address the needs of people, capitalism cannot be trusted, and cannot be expected to maintain a complex computational infrastructure in, well into the future. From its unchecked success, that is to say from its growth, unchecked by human need will come, I believe, its eventual failure. Facebook, Twitter, Google, all these systems that we look to now as part of our, our daily life, all of these systems are based upon a house of cards, which will eventually succumb to the problems of complexity, the problems of geopolitics, the problems of entropy, Unless, of course, we arrange ourselves in a different way to acknowledge these problems, address them, and build a computational infrastructure for humanity rather than for corporate interests. And with that, I thank you for your time. Thank you. On that note, <laughs> uh, I'm totally with you. We're good. We'll do a Q&A and everything at the end after Isabel presents, but uh, I am mentally preparing myself for when this happens because I think all the time of like not just of course the social media you mentioned but like everything's dependent on these computers now it's like airplanes banks you know it's like what happens when this stuff starts to fall apart I guess we will see mm -hmm. and on, on that happy note <laughs> I love the presentation uh next we have Dr. Isabel Millar 
and she's presenting Virilio's Lost Dimensions, the Psychic and the Technical. Isabel Millar is a philosopher and psychoanalytic theorist from London. She's the author of The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence, published in the Palgrave Lacan series in 2021, and Patty Politics on the Government of Sexual Suffering, forthcoming with Bloomsbury 2023. She's currently research fellow and faculty at the Global Center for Advanced Studies Institute of Psychoanalysis and associate researcher at Newcastle University. And I will put up her social media and website as well in the chat. So take it away, Isabel. Thanks, Vanessa. Um, thank you, Vanessa. And thank you, Morbid Anatomy, for hosting this. And Dwayne, thank you for that brilliant talk. Um, because I, I basically wanted to 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 do something that would sort of chime with Dwayne's work because he's so um, fascinating and also gives a real sort of like concrete um, context to things that can sometimes be very abstract and um, intangible. And, uh, you know, naturally, given that I'm a philosopher, I tend to talk in quite abstract and intangible ways sometimes. So I really am glad that, uh, you know, Dwayne anchors things in a way that actually gives it some meat, you know. So I think that what I'm going to talk about today is it's sort of derived from the psychoanalysis of AI, my first book, and I'm working towards my second book, as Vanessa mentioned, Pattern Politics, um, which kind of draws out themes around the question of AI, but expands them into other questions to do with um, uh, more political concerns, as a sort of Duane is highlighting. Um, the question of war, uh, the question of acceleration, the question of um, space and time in a more concrete sense, and the way in which um, lots of these questions are often um, relegated to uh, abstraction, whereas actually we need to um, really think about the material ways in which uh, space and time and technology and AI are real problems and real have real effects, but also uh, real psychoanalytic questions. So this sort of uh, intangible and material question sort of is smashed together when you enter the realm of the body and the enjoying human subject which is the terrain of psychoanalysis. Although I'm not actually going to specifically talk a lot about psychoanalysis today, um, the, 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 the person who I suppose I'm mostly drawing from is Paul Virilio, but also, um, you know, he's from that generation which is highly uh, influenced by people like Lacan. So it's all, it's all ultimately psychoanalytic, um, I, I think. So, yes, I'll, I'll talk for about 20 minutes um, okay, so Virilio's Lost Dimensions, uh, the psychic and the technical. The, the French philosopher, architect and historian of war, Paul Virilio, was famously against the idea of Taoism, as he believed the future of cities would not be in their skyward dimension. In fact, he worked with the architect Claude Perrant in the 1960s on the oblique function, a third order beyond the horizontal of rural dwellings or the vertical of the urban. The oblique function would make space completely accessible, increasing the amount of usable surface according to the principle of habitable circulation. They only ever completed two buildings, a cryptic church in Nevers and a missile design workshop in Vesely. 
And inside these two sacred spaces, what is at stake are the two dimensions of speed incommensurate in our contemporary condition, the time of contemplation and mortality, and the time of acceleration and death. Today, this dialectical relationship between psychic time and technical time has, we could say, become ever more oblique. Aurelio himself talked of this new time. He said, a new day has been added to the astronomer's solar day that's brought about by the electronic false day, which has no relation whatsoever to real time. Chronological and historical time, time that passes, is replaced by a time that exposes itself instantaneously on the computer screen, a time period that the support surface of that becomes the support surface of inscription, literally, or better, cinematically, time surfaces. In Virilio's materialist view, all technology aims towards the acceleration of forces, and all of these forces, even though they may appear consumer-driven, are ultimately in the service of war, in his opinion. Virilio's emblematic concept, dromology, from his work Speed and Politics, derived from the Latin dromos, meaning race or racetrack, is the science and logic of speed as a cultural and civilizational force. And speaking of revolutionary movements, he says, the revolutionary contingent attains its ideal form not from the place of production, but in the street, where for a moment it stops being a cog in the technical machine and itself becomes a motor machine of attack. In other words, a producer of speed. So for, for Virilio, since the driving factor of civilization is war, all technologies are initially and essentially military strategy. And today, this fact is easy to apprehend as we all carry a piece of redundant military technology in our pockets your auto-surveillance device or iPhone, which knows everywhere you've been and tells you where your pizza delivery driver is, would have originally been designed to track snipers on enemy territory, for example. In fact, looked at from Virilio's perspective, it's obvious that all technology is fundamentally bellicose. We civilians merely passively consume the out-of-date offcuts and dead stock of the military-industrial complex. Consumer territory, after all, is only extension of war by other means. Virilio says, whoever controls the territory possesses it. Possession of territory is not primarily about laws and contracts, but first and foremost, a matter of movement and circulation. Unquote. Paradoxically, however, the acceleration of our technologies is not proportionate to the acceleration of our physical and mental capacities, nor for that matter, the elongation of our lives. In the time that it's taken to move from the invention of the telegram to the quantum computer, the human being has not changed at all. The maturation time of an infant is still the same as it was thousands of years ago. And with each passing generation, we don't retain intellectual gains in any other form than inherited cultural capital and access to education. In fact, what thinkers like Adorno, Benjamin and Stiegler remind us is that unless we take great pains to conserve the critical capacity and historical progress of the human cultural phenotype, there are only various forms of degeneration that await us as a species. This may be in the form of a loss of physical ability, aesthetic sensibility, cognitive capacity, cultural savoir-faire, ethical sophistication, or what Bernard Stiegler might warn us, calls for the preservation of a general organology of memo-technological capabilities. In other words, the various components of the civilized human made up of cultural, physical, perceptual, and critical dimensions. In this computer time that we live in, as Virilio puts it, we have constructed a permanent present, an unbounded, timeless intensity that is destroying the tempo of a 
progressively degraded society. So how then do we begin to think about the temporal and spatial life world of the human being in the context of the dromological pace of information and surveillance technology? The human who enters the obliquely designed cryptic church to contemplate their finite existence in the timeless present of the infinite is the same human who enters the missile workshop to design the fastest way to bring about the future-oriented annihilation of his fellow man and ultimately himself. And there is no contradiction here, of course. Humans have always held the space of the sacred in tandem with the sacrifice of life, as Bataille knew so well. But what is of significance is that at some point, the technology in the service of war will become so efficient as to remove the time for contemplation altogether, at which point we have to wonder what happens. Is it perhaps similar to the example that Zizek recounts of Friedrich Brown's short story about the time travel experiment in which when a solid cube is sent back and forth in time using a physicist's time machine, something quite astonishing happens. Surprisingly, when a past action is thwarted by human intervention, what disappears is not the cube, but the whole universe surrounding it. And the story ends mid-sentence. The reality which supported the brute matter is gone, leaving only the cube as the intractable real of the universe. This flipping over from the concrete time of human action to the abstract time of human thought places us on the threshold of a perpetually lost dimension. In this oblique relation between these two times, the psychic and the technical or technological time, as Reza Negaristani might call it, we have the, the mobus drift between the individual human psyche and the technical abstraction of its multiplicitous, intensive and larval capacities. In the attempt to model AI technologies on the physiology of the brain, the dromological factor becomes pertinent. Due to the sheer complexity of the billions of neural connections, it would take so much data and time in, the ter in terms of, spatio of a spatiotemporal problem that would make it impossible in our species' lifetime, given that we'd most likely destroy our habitable environment before we even came close to achieving such a feat. What we have instead is that various partial structures of the brain are modelled in order to replicate different processes. Thinking instead about intelligence as an extensive, uh, an expansive plane of potentiality from which it's possible to augment various capacities, we may understand that AI is actually best thought of as a way of accentuating certain aspects of cognition, as opposed to replicating an entire gestalt of a human. And each of those aspects are in turn subject to all of the contingencies that the scientific episteme of the epoch produces. In terms of gemology, it's very easy to accentuate and augmentate certain aspects of human cognition, which would be difficult for the average human, or indeed impossible, such as complex calculation and logic, processing and analysing enormous volumes of information, very high speed, whilst other things that human beings do very easily which concern the haptic, affective and perceptual embodied dimensions are much more difficult for the computer to simulate and some are just not amenable to being sped up. So to put this into context of Virilio's critique of technology, perhaps this unspoken temporal dialectic may be equally perceived in the distinction in IA, AI development and research between the analogy to the mind or to the brain. On the one hand, the AI that deals with the question of the so-called mind is called symbolic AI, algorithms, computer programs, and the domain of language and communication, 
replicating the symbolic interaction human beings engage in and the dead structures of meaning into which they are born. On the other hand, there is the branch of AI that attempts to approach the replication of, the human, of human intelligence via the simulation of actual structures of the physical brain, which is called neural networks. To replicate the whole brain is currently still impossible, and there are attempts to reproduce at least uh, animal brains in silico. Clearly, there is a discrepancy here, not just between the age-old individual mind-brain problem within neuroscience, but the temporal dimension in which the space of thought takes place. The brain as an organism has a particular biological lifespan and spatial extension, whereas symbolic structures are immortal, immaterial, abstract, and acephalic. And it's important to remember that just as our notions of mind, psyche, and subjectivity have changed with each epoch, the metaphors for the brain have changed over history too. And those metaphors in turn have shaped the way we think about the physical brain and the spatial entity of it. In pre-modern times, before the brain was even conceived, conceived of as the seat of subjectivity, the soul or thought or whatever at the time would have sounded most appropriate, it was merely one part of the body, an organ which produced different sorts of personality and disposition. We can think, for example, of the four classical humours, sanguine, choleric, melancholic, and phlegmatic, corresponding to blood, liver, yellow bile, gallbladder, black bile, spleen, and phlegm, brain and lungs. It's only in the modern period that the brain becomes properly an object of study and is associated analogically with whichever science of the time was fashionable, hydraulics, electronics, etc. In our postmodern digital age, it's naturally the computer that dominates as a metaphor for understanding the way the brain functions. But the brain is not a computer. And this, like all other previous metaphors, will no doubt be dislodged at some point. Arguably, we might say that the metaphor of the brain as computer is being supplanted by the metaphor of the cloud in the popular imagination. An immaterial substance uh, that can be up, up, can upload and download information almost by osmosis. In some ways, this is sort of an indication of a return to a pre-modern cosmology of elements, earth, water, fire, air. Strangely, our technology then has enabled a full circle return, imaginarily at least, to the so-called immateriality of the human soul or, or, or subjectivity. What we have then is a sort of culmination of instrumental rationality is at the culmination of it is the inauguration of a new form of ineffability. Here we see clearly one of the phantasmatic forms in which the time of the psychic becomes transmuted into the time of the technical. As I argued in the psychoanalysis of AI, the psychoanalytic structure of subjectivity, both temporal and corporal, is crucial for understanding the development, both real and phantasmatic, of notions of AI and its significance for us as speaking sex subjects. Humans are stuck between formalization and contingency, or as Badiou would put it, between mathem and anxiety. But of course, it's the axiological, the capacity to make judgments, to be able to evaluate the significance of an image, to recognize the importance of a text, to judge beauty, and so on, which is a dimension which dromology cannot penetrate. The axiological involves many complex philosophical temporalities and oblique forms of rationality and recursivity. And these forms of human thinking are just not best captured by the metaphor of the computer, nor the science of logic and speed. As Badiou says, the human subject is characterized by an imminent relation between haste and restraint. He says, 
This relation entails a dialectical link between the formulas as products of the desire for the mathine, correct formalization, and the affect, anxiety, as the guarantee of the real. Um, this thus in their temporal dialectic, mathine and anxiety are the contrasting figures of the deferred access to the real, an access that as a braid, woven out, woven out of time, always suspended between haste and stagnation, will in the end be decided in the guise of the act by the analysand him or herself, unquote. So at this point, I want to refer to uh, Reza Negrestani's Intelligence and Spirit and ask, as he does in relation to the generation of artificial general, general intelligence, exactly what kind of creatures are able to conceive of making something better than themselves and what capacity elevate our seemingly most noble and divine attributes to their utmost capacity even if it means leaving ourselves to perish in the wake of what comes after us. The question is what this better version of humans would look like. Veteran scientist and inventor of the Gaia hypothesis, James Lovelock, has an idea about what these kind of better creatures might be. In Novocene, he proposes that the age of the Anthropocene, the geological period in which humans acquired planetary scale technology, has already come to an end and we're entering a new age. This Novocene in which the technology will, be, will come to inherit the consciousness of the cosmos. In his vision, artificially intelligent beings who can think 10,000 times faster than humans will emerge as the inheritors of the earth and caretakers of the intelligent universe, supremely intelligent beings. But what Negarastani has in mind, however, is the salvation for the conditions of philosophy, as opposed to any particular type of being capable of philosophizing. To save the project of AI from its humanist errors, this idea of acceleration, as it were, and open up its prehistory of a genuine post-human philosophy that it may be capable of. As he puts it, philosophy begins with a universal thesis regarding the equality of all minds, that whoever or whatever satisfies the basic conditions of its possibility should be seen as and treated as equal in the broadest possible sense. But as a discipline of philosophizing becomes more mature, it ought to realize that there is in fact a significant truth to these accusations of philosophy as a Western self-entitled mode of thinking, however ill-judged they may seem. The equality of minds as a thesis about what is true and what is just is a dictum universal and necessary in its truth and applicability. But this does not mean that it's concretely universal for us. It's something to be achieved and concretely instituted." Unquote. So in other words, a dynamic process in perpetuity that engages in a constant struggle against complacency. In Negaristani's thrilling book, he concludes by offering a program for the emancipation of intelligence from the servitude of any god, whether that be the god of religion, nature, technology, or economy. In imagining this perpetual breaking free from the shackles of the totalization of history, we must ourselves become philosophical gods. As he puts it, the practical elaboration of the death of God is not a matter of a quibble between the jaded atheistic cult of humanism and the theistic crowd, but a precondition for voiding the conditions of injustice throughout history, a requirement that we become gods who, in their death, give rise to something better. Unquote. Better, stronger, faster, indeed. But for what? 
what Virilio's phallic dromology captures is this paradoxical death drive at the heart of human subjectivity, the excessive unbounded force that ineluctably strives not towards the completion of a goal, but the production of ever more ways of thwarting its own satisfaction. The oblique function, as Virilio conceives it spatially, is in a way the only route towards this superior dimension of the human, not upwards, not sideways, but anamorphically bending around in non-Euclidean space. And I'm going to finish there. Thank you. Um, so now, now we can have questions and discussion. If anybody has any questions from the audience, feel free to put them in the chat. And uh, I'll start with you all first, Dwayne or Isabel. Do you have anything that you want to comment on or ask the other? Well, I'm actually interested in what uh, Isabel said about the idea of AGI or the dream of AGI being the creation of an entity or an intelligence that surpasses our own, which of course is what the individuals who pursue that particular line of, I'm not even quite sure I would call it a research program because a research program requires, um, I mean, as you know, I'm a materialist. And so a research program requires an actual path. In other words, to give an example, in 1933, if I was building rockets, my research program was how do I make those rockets fly higher? And even though I might have lacked in 1933 the technology to do so, I knew what was required. Whereas today for AGI, what we have are assertions that are unsupported mm -hmm. by, by any actual, ex actually existing technology. And it occurs to me that um, one of the things that the AGI dreamers may be missing is that the very things that they hold in disdain about humanity are imprecision our tendency towards error, maybe the very things that make our intelligence possible. Um, and this has occurred to me on, on, on multiple occasions that, um, that they, they see these things as, as a lack, but perhaps these things are necessary. And without those things, you would not actually have cognition as we currently, well, as it evolved, as it actually evolved, right? Mm -hmm. um, not that it's perfect, but but what is perfection, really? And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. In, in other words, about the necessity of error, of, of imprecision in the creation of the cognition that we have. Um, because if we were very precise creatures, um, or if we perceive reality unmediated by our fantasies and so forth, we wouldn't be human. And what kind of creatures would we be? Um, and the machines that they try to create uh, would not be, if, the, if, if it even was achievable, if it even if it is achievable, these would not be the kinds of, of uh, entities that could even communicate mm -hmm. with us. Because, um, and I think this is something novelette by uh, Stanislaw Lem called Golem. Um, XIV. And in that story, um, there's a supercomputer that is created that achieves intelligence. And it says that it can only talk to humanity once because as it ascends, so to speak, or as it changes, it doesn't even use the term ascension. Um, it says that it's, it's, the nature of its intelligence is so alien because we developed in the savannas of Africa. 
but it developed in a, in you know in a, in a, a machine lab, and so it can't talk to us, and so um, and because it doesn't have those 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 aspects of its of its cognition, so I'm wondering what your your thought is about the role of of um, of imprecision, of fantasy, of dreams, of making mistakes in in what forms human cognition as opposed to what these people are dreaming of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's sort of like the kind of crux isn't it of of um this well certainly my um interest in 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 ai is the 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 whole kind of basis for um its development is founded on what i feel like is a complete um misapprehension of what human thinking is like and it's so interesting to think that so much money and so much um so many resources um, are founded upon this sort of misrecognition of human intelligence. Um, you know, of course, the, the idea of rationality and the idea of computation is an aspect that we've um, been able to extract from our sort of positivistic um, studies of, of human th- thought and and as the sort of program of instrumental rationality, the idea of the human brain uh, going further and further towards this complete um, computational version of itself, uh, you know, is already has has had already started to be criticised by you know, for example, the Frankfurt School, where they were already looking at the ways in which when you start extracting human thought um, from actual lived experience, what happens can be extremely diabolical, dangerous, and genocidal. And you know that that sort of principle, you know, without w- wishing to cause to call Silicon Valley genocidal, but this principle of um, extraction of rationality is very dangerous, and we know it's dangerous. Um, yet we still carry on doing it, and we still think that the the best way to improve human thinking and to improve the human species is to computerize and to speed up and to just go full throttle in all of these ways of of um, compartmentalizing thinking but we know so clearly that that's that's not how human beings function at all that's not how human uh, interaction functions it's not how communication functions and you don't even need to do psychoanalysis to know that you don't even need to study Lacan and and um, you know intricate math themes to understand that there is something um, incomputable about the trans transfer of information and in fact, human knowledge is not the transfer of information. That's a sort of byproduct of it. But you know, it's the mistakes and the errors and the and and the sort of and the negativity, you know, in the um dialectical sense of the word that we are always going to need as this excessive part of thought. Um and obviously one aspect of that is is the actual materiality of it, the material sense of the body uh being there and being part of the the kind of enjoyment of knowledge um but also there's something sort of in this in the abstract way that i find really fascinating about the way that you get this sort of recursive relationship between how we um think of the brain as a computer um and we, but yet the brain is the thing that allowed us to create computers. And now we think of the brain as if it is a computer, 
but it's not a computer. How could it be a computer? You know, and so I always find that quite interesting. You know, I'm not a computer scientist. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I don't create AI programs yet. I look at the the way that um the like neural networks versus symbolic AI um interacts as if, you know, there's this sort of like full picture of the human subject there. And all you need to do is put the two together and then you've got a full human. And it's like, but no, that's not <laughs> that's not how it works. So and yeah, that's exactly right. And and um, as you may know, there's a, a controversy um, unfolding now in um, amongst some of the luminaries of the field. Um, I'll, I'll just name them: uh, Gary Marcus and Jan Lecun, for example. That they've engaged in a Twitter fight recently um, because uh, for a number of years, uh, Gary Marcus, who is a cognitive scientist, as I'm sure you know. Um, uh, has but also an AI researcher has been saying that the methods that Silicon Valley has been pursuing, which is more more hardware, more game processing units, more more processing, larger data centers, um, just, uh, scale is all you need. It's not sufficient to produce machines that are even useful in a Star Trek sense. And in a Star Trek sense, I mean, if you look at Star Trek, there is a library computer and they're able to interact with it. No one assumes that it, it can think. They just know that it has certain capabilities that are the result of um, sophistication in its design um, so that it can actually, you know, examine uh, text. And then, you know, uh, Commander LaForge says, give me all the information about, um, you know, warp drive from, you know, 2130 to 2230, whatever. And the computer is able to actually read the text, but no one assumes it can think. Um, and so Gary Marcus has been saying for quite some time, uh, what we are doing today, what Silicon Valley is pushing the field into doing, um, will never produce even what they claim, which is something as rudimentary and yet as useful to humanity as computation that has the ability to synthesize text and then produce useful output. Um, and so Jan LeCun just recently said, oh, yes, uh, that, that, that's actually true, but hasn't credited Gary Marcus. So that, that, that's the basis of the, mm. the academic dispute. But what's happening, I think, is that um, the field is beginning to realize that what they have been promoting for a while, what some of the luminaries of the field have been promoting, which is just more computation, more hardware, um, is producing nothing. It's producing effects that are interesting, such as uh, generative imagery, uh, uh, fancy versions of um, the ELISA program, such as GPT-3 and so forth. But if you have a massive data center consuming massive amounts of power, just to be able to say, you know, just to be able to vectorize text, what have you actually achieved? You're not producing intelligence. You're producing very elaborate and very costly pattern matching. Um, and so um, there is no epistemological understanding in that world, apparently. And all the things that you talk about, not to mention the, just the basic materialist things that I talk about, are ignored by the mm. very people who claim to be replicating human intelligence. Mm. And so I think we're in a situation in which there are fundamental insights um, about um, what we know about cognition. Uh, and, and we're still in the beginning stages, yeah, um, you know, um, uh, are just ignored. And these people mm. just think that they just keep throwing processors at the problem yeah. they'll just voila one day they'll just oh the machine thinks which is a very science fictiony 
but I would say cheap science fiction-y, like pop science fiction-y yeah. notion, right? Because some of the luminaries of science fiction, and I mentioned Lem earlier, did not think that. So e and certainly um, people like uh, William Gibson didn't think that. Um, so even from a science fiction point of view, you're basically using TV science fiction as your as your guide, but you have a, a you have a budget of billions to actually <laughs> play out these these silly ideas and uh, they're quite costly in material terms in money terms in resources terms and i am wondering um to for, and this is why it's really exciting to me to have you here because the, in addition to the financial incentives which is what i focus on like the material incentives i'm wondering what fantasy what ideological incentives um, people have to pursue this line of research, which, which clearly has a dead end, it it, it is a dead end, um, and will not produce what 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 they claim, um, but they continue to pour resources into it, you know, with this dream of of creating machines that will wake up and say, you know, hello, how are you? I love you, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's so it, it's theological, really. I mean, it's it, it, to be sort of banal about it. You, it does seem like it is a, a just a version of um, sort of technological um, religion. You know, it's a, the, the creation of um, a living being out of nothing. You know, we've never understood how that works. We still don't. So, of course, we we are puzzled as to how do you make some consciousness come into the world out of biological matter? And that's something that boggles our minds. And, you know, psychoanalysis is kind of one of the disciplines that really takes that question seriously and doesn't try to give it an answer because um, it's one of the few discourses that allow you to realize that that's a dead end of thought you can't you can't know how a subject comes into being because there's something about it that's a complete impossibility and um, this this sort of desperate need to try and come up with the full picture which is, of course, the you know, the the program of of scientific rationality is is the full need to come up with the with the, the the picture, the full picture. But but actually, real science um, is predicated upon never knowing uh, the full picture. And the scientific method truly is the method which always rejects the last bit of knowledge because they're waiting for the the next bit of knowledge. Which for you know psychoanalysis is the hysterics discourse. It's you know, there is no full truth. I won't accept this this piece of full truth. I'm looking for the next thing, and and real science does that. But but you know, pseudoscience, which arguably um, AI, it parts of AI are, are pseudoscience, um, don't understand the basic idea of science, which is that it's never full, it's never complete, it's always looking for for the the next bit, and and hence you know, really. Um, science and, and philosophy need to always work together because uh, scientific paradigms rely on the metaphysics of the, of the epoch and they always rely on whatever is happening in thought uh, over, over the centuries. That's what really will define how we, how we, what type of sciences we can have. Um, and I think that it's quite interesting that at the moment we're at a part of history where there is a very big disjunction between philosophy and the sciences and you know science has taken on this very um authoritarian position as the the you know the only the only discourse anyone should listen to a discourse of truth 
And uh, you know, philosophers um, don't get a look in. The idea that we used to have people like Galileo and Copernicus and you know, people who were scientists and philosophers, you know, Descartes and Leibniz and people who were at the intersection of thinking about cosmological questions, they don't exist anymore. And that's to do with the the, the way that we organise knowledge as well. So there's mm-hmm. quite a meta process that's going on as well to do with how we um, distinguish between different types of knowledges and what, what kind of knowledges can make money and what kind of knowledges can't make money. And because, yeah. yeah, I mean, philosophy doesn't make money for a start. That's well, why it's not... And I, I think you touched on that, and I'll, I'll say this, and then I'll, I'll, I'll see if there's any questions from the audience. But you touched on this in the beginning when you mentioned that, um, quite accurately, that computation, of course, started its life as a military project. It continues to be primarily a military project. And one of the things that I, I say to people, particularly younger people I'm trying to mentor, is that computation under capitalism is a command and control technology. Now, one of the things that I'm embracing, I'm re-embracing is cybernetics, a lost art from the mid 20th century, which I think, my opinion, is that it was intercepted and suppressed because it fundamentally questions what we are doing. Because at the heart of cybernetics is the idea of navigating complexity, not mastering, but navigating. There's an acceptance, as you said about science, um, of true science, there's an acceptance of the un, of the unknowable. You accept the unknowable and then say, but yet, as human beings, we do have to navigate. Like, like for example, cybernetics would fit very well in a, uh, a, a totally Aboriginal tribe working within a rainforest. There's nothing mm. anti-cybernetic about that because they have to navigate that com- that super complex um, um, environment, and so. The computation under capitalism um, is a command and control technology designed to to aid the um, to to be the layer for capitalism that enables it to create metrics around everything, right? And so that is that is the very antithesis of science. And so once computation became firmly in um, in in the grip of of capitalist interests, I think that's when what should have been a research, an open-ended research program that would last for centuries um, became something that had to produce results immediately. Um, and, that, um, and machine learning, of course, produces some results as pattern matching. So that's why so much effort is poured into it. But also, I think the reason why actual scientific inquiry, uh, such as the inquiry of cognitive science, um, is, is, um, is ridiculed um, and attacked, and which is why individuals like Gary Marcus are are, are often attacked, um, because they ask fundamental questions, scientific questions, which are uncomfortable for a Google or for mm. a Facebook or for a Microsoft, because they want operational uh, action now, you know, that, that increases profit. And, um, and basic research is just not something that, of course, a corporation, I mean, they only do it, you know, if there's, um, if there's a profit motivation behind it. ExxonMobil does basic research of some sort, but, um, you know, but only to extract, you know, more and more um, um, hydrocarbons, for example. So I I think that we're at an impasse in which the kinds of questions that you ask and the kind of question from a psychoanalytic perspective and the kind of questions that I ask from a materialist perspective are considered uncomfortable and unwanted by this entire field. 
Um, and certainly tech bros, like if we were to give a presentation in Silicon Valley, um, there would be tech bros saying sexist things to you and racist things to me. And the reason they would be saying these things is not only because they're assholes, because they are, but also because we would be challenging their assumptions, their assumptions about the role of computation mm. um, and their pretensions to be doing scientific work when in fact they are not. They are doing engineering work designed to increase the profit of, of the organizations that they that they work for. But I'll I'll stop talking now and see if there's any any questions from anybody. Nico, put, put questions in the chat if you want. I love this series because I get to pick people who I want to see have a conversation. <laughs> Do my own. This is my own little place where I get to play God. I'm like, hmm, I want Isabel and Wayne to have a conversation, and then I get to listen to it. So <laughs> it's very fun for me, um, and it's such an interesting conversation. And I took a screenshot of this book, The Collapse of Complex Societies, because I'm going to order that. And I'm also going to order Stanislav Lem Golem, um, because I'm so interested in, in all of this. And it's, I mean, it's so essential to our life currently. And I feel like, uh, I feel like, <laughs> even though I hate the like little warnings on cigarette packets of like, oh, this is going to give you cancer or whatever, I feel like like your slides should somehow come with all these gadgets that we buy like hey this is a cloud you know like wake up everyone it's not it's not this ethereal magical thing and I actually am super against like the cloud and like I, of course when it started I had it because it was just like okay this is the next thing and then I consciously like got myself off of the cloud and like took all my photos off and put them on a hard drive and and it's like I did that years and years ago but it badgers me all the time trying to get me in this cloud it freezes my phone it constantly tells me that it's full it's not full I'm like this phone is not full there's barely any pictures on it but it's like constantly giving me problems and telling me like this is the solution go get a cloud and I'm like I'm not getting your fucking cloud you know <laughs> I'm so anti-cloud um yeah so I just had to say that <laughs> no, it's it's it, well, it's actually a form of uh, self-defense. I mean, it's interesting. I you know, I wrote a, a essay for Logic magazine um, about how cloud came into um, corporate spaces uh, because I was there at, at the beginning, and I was uh, an early enthusiast um, because there was a problem solved, in which the problem was. Um, you know, uh, if you need more computational power, it's expensive, you know, for whatever your purpose might be. I mean, universities know this, certainly companies know this, yeah. Um, and you know it personally, you just can't buy all the computers you want <laughs> or the storage you want. Um, and the cloud, um, as sold by Amazon and later Microsoft and then Google uh, and then Alibaba and IBM and Oracle and others, it seemed to solve this problem because their, their promise was infinite, infinite storage infinite computation. And I freely admit that for a moment, for a moment, as if under the spell of a beautiful sorceress, I said, oh, yes, of course, it's infinite. It's infinite. It's infinite. You see my eyes spinning. And then I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is infinite. Perhaps the universe is infinite, but certainly not storage, not computation, because it has to be made from something. Right. And then it's when I so when I somebody threw some cold water over my head and I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, there is actually an industrial process 
um, underlying all of this that I began to to then um, investigate. And also when I noticed some people on the left who I, I follow and admire basing their critique, like the techno-feudalist um, thesis, which I've been doing some research, I'm writing an essay challenging that. Um, it's based upon this idea of an infinite resource that capitalists can use in well into the future to control us. I'm like, well, no, they, they cannot. And, and, and I'm not saying this as like, you know, is this is some happy thing that will be free. I'm just saying that you're equating land, which was the basis, so we are told, of the feudal lord's power with computation. But the difference is that the feudal lord could have, you know, control of land, but land is naturally occurring. Mm -hmm. It can be fallow. It can be productive. It doesn't matter. But um, but it exists as a, as a natural thing. Computation does not exist as a natural thing. It has to be manufactured from a wide variety of inputs. And so it can fall apart. The whole thing can just fall apart. Um, and history has given us many instances in which things that seem quite solid, I'm sure that Roman citizens who, you know, at the height of the empire enjoyed, you know, figs from here and olive oil from there and wine from someplace else. When all that came to an end, they were like, holy shit, how <laughs> I had fresh water from an aqueduct and all these things happen and now it's all over. How did that happen? Well, I, I'm not saying that this is inevitable, but 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 it can happen. And the signs are that, you know, uh, without careful management and intelligence, which it's just not something that capitalism is is geared to do. It's not designed to manage the world intelligently. Mm -hmm. It's designed to extract you know, to derive, to, 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 to grow endlessly. And, and that's just not possible. So um, once I realized that, then I became uh, a person who, who challenged the, the, the cloud narrative um, and, and began to, to say that, yeah, we, we need to think harder about this. And then also the AI narrative, because um, much of what we call AI is based upon computational resources that are made available via cloud providers. Um, um, I, I was uh, interviewed recently by Paris Marx for the Tech Won't Save Us podcast. And one of the things I was emphasizing there was that, um, you know, we could just, like uh, Isabel, Vanessa, and I, we could start a, a startup and called, um, you know, Morbid Academy AI. And we could just, you know, plug into AWS and say, oh, we're just, we're, we will psychoanalyze you using machine learning. We could just lie and just say that, right? And just create some stupid models. And we could use cl cloud to, yeah. to power this. Um, whereas in the past, we would have to have purchased the computers and, and had a data center and all this. And so it's also a force multiplier for harm, which is, I think is one of the, one of the issues that we're facing uh, the material issues that we're facing as well is that people are being har people are being literally harmed by uh, algorithms that are deciding benefits and determining fraud and, and just doing all sorts of things. Who's a criminal? Who's not a criminal? Mm. This we are being corralled um, into a, 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 a situation that is uh, that's quite bad, and it's also primitive. But it's being sold as if it's the height of sophistication. Yeah. Yeah. So, Dwayne, what are we going to do about it? <laughs> yeah, what do we do, Dwayne? 
<laughs> I, I advocate. What you can know, the I, average I, citizen do? <laughs> you know, I advocate for public goods computation, public goods governance. The principles of public goods governance should be applied to computation. Computation should be considered a public utility under public control. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's what we have to to push for. Um, uh, because right now it's, it is quite literally the wild west. And, um, and, uh, that is, is boxing us into a corner. Not only are they creating systems that are controlling us and that, that, uh, but, um, they are earlier. One of my inspirations is project CyberSyn, which was in Chile in the 1970s, uh, pioneered by Stafford Beer, one of, one of the, as it happens, pioneers of cybernetics. And it was a feedback loop system in which you receive data from the people and you take action according to that data. There is a role for computation in a complex modern society, but not what we're doing. What we're mm-hmm. doing is, is something that's quite different from that. Um, so we could have all of this, but it would be for us, not for them. And, and, and I think that's, that's, that's the, the difference. My, my fact is... Um, um, uh, take over, but um, but uh, but uh, lacking the the power to do that, I, I think that we need to advocate um, strenuously for for public goods uh, computation, and I, I think that there's a, a very pivotal role for psychoanalytic um, analysis here, because there are motivations beyond profit uh, um, that um, that also need to be examined because. In a, we know why the capitalists do what they do, but there are millions of people who believe. And why do they believe? What, what is the basis of their belief? And this is what we need to understand as well. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard presentations by Dr. Isabel Miller and Dwayne Monroe. For more, be sure to follow them on social media and check out their websites. Dr. Miller is at isabelmiller.com. That's I-S-A-B-E-L-M-I-L-L-A-R.com. And Dwayne Monroe is at duanemonroe.com. D-W-A-Y-N-E-M-O-N-R-O-E.com. Links to their social media and other information can be found at the main website, renderingunconscious.org. As always, huge thanks to Carl Abrahamson for the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious podcast. The song at the end of this episode is from a collaboration I did with UK Sonic Mastermind Pete Murphy. Visit his bandcamp at petemurphy.bandcamp.com. It's also available to stream at Spotify and other streaming services. You can also visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. All the music there is free download, name your price. So enjoy. A scar. Make believe. Make hell. Make light. Make signals. Make love. Make love. Make love. 
Yes. Our minds. Man. Our minds. Switching mirrors. Switching mirrors. Switching mirrors. Switching mirrors. Our minds. Man. Our minds. Switching mirrors. Switching mirrors. Our minds. Our minds. Switching mirrors. Switching mirrors. Switching mirrors. Switching mirrors. Make my life, my life. 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 The world so entirely strange.